At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Darius underscore Garland, hit me in my DM. Favorite NBA team? Uh, gotta go with the Lakers. Everybody to the Lakers Legacy Podcast, where we are now right in the thick of the NBA draft season, thinking about, well, how thick some of these prospects are. And with the NBA Combine having come and gone, and individual team workouts well underway, body fat percentages and half-inch tallies to one's height are all the rage right now. So welcome to Draftopia. Tommy, do you consider yourself a wingspan or max vert kind of guy? What's your draft measurement fetish? I'm all about that Max Vert, bruh. Ooh, you nasty boy. <laughs> Jesus. I consider myself more of a wingspan guy, and I think a lot of people are wingspan guys, but I, uh, I respect the Max Vert. Were, were there any impressive Max Verts uh, coming out of the combine that you remember two weeks ago? Big one that stood out to me was Brandon Clark because I don't know that... Yeah. I mean, we've seen few like special freak... Big men put up a vert like big number of verticals, but a six eight guy to put up like a forty inch vertical. I think he had a thirty five or thirty four and a half or something like that inch standing vertical. That's pretty damn yep. impressive. I don't know that really. I mean, I think that's even less than Bla- uh, what Blake Griffin put up. I remember Blake Griffin being like mid to high thirties, and everybody thinking like that was insane for a power forward. So forty and a half inches max vert for a six eight power forward is is pretty damn impressive. Yeah, and I know a lot of discussion was made about you know Brandon Clark's shorter than usual wingspan, but he more than makes up for it with his standing vert, max vert, and his athleticism. So so very, very impressive by Brandon Clark. Um, tonight's episode, Lord knows Tommy and I can talk ourselves into oblivion about every draft prospect this year and every which way the Lakers could go with their pick. Uh, but tonight, we'd like to bring in someone with much more expertise and knowledge than we do to help corral the conversation in a more productive and substantial direction. So as is annual tradition at this point, we've got Mr. Coleswicker on to help us suss through all of the Lakers options at number four, as well as some of the trade options the Lakers have as well, because it is a unique offseason this year. Um, before we get to our interview with Cole, though, please follow us on Twitter at Lakers Legacy Pod. 
Please also rate and review us on iTunes because the more you rate and review us, that's an additional body fat percentage that will be ticked off the body of whoever the Lakers draft from now until the start of next year's regular season, provided that dude gets kept. Uh, which means that guy will be extra ripped and strong. So please rate and review us for an extra tick off of body fat percentage. Unless it's Bull Bull, of course, because that guy needs the fat. Also, patreon.com slash the Lakers Legacy Podcast. If you'd like to help us out in any small way financially, you can do so there. Uh, with that said, Tommy was not able to join us for our interview portion with Cole, unfortunately. Um, but before we get to Cole, I'd like to ask Tommy about his updated draft thoughts on prospects for the Lakers at the number four spot. Uh, so, Tommy, whether it's uh, you watched more tape, seen more of the playoffs and which types of players are excelling over others, or whether you've simply accounted for something new that you didn't account for before, how is your personal big board at number four looking for the Lakers. Uh, you know, there's a tons of talk about Darius Garland, Jarrett Culver, DeAndre Hunter, and of course, Brandon Clark. Although at this early stage, maybe Brandon Clark's being looked at as somewhat of a reach. And also maybe we'll shuffle in RJ Barrett in that group as well in the event that the Knicks somehow pass on him. But out of those prospects, how would you rank your big board and uh, how, how close are the the tiers for you? Yeah, in terms of those three in particular, and I guess maybe the reason I got confused is because I don't know that I'm sold that RJ Barrett is going to go three. But anyway, assuming that assuming that those are the three we're looking at, which there's a very high likely, likelihood, I guess that'll be the case. My current my current order, I guess, would be Darius Garland first, then I would take uh, DeAndre Hunter, and then I would take Culver. Um, I really like um, that Darius Garland is a scoring guard uh we have a lot of guys who are kind of do it all do it all like uh jack of, jack of all trades type of guys i think we need a guy who is like kyle kuzma is a scorer but darius garland is like that that type of like top five nba pick scorer who you just know that in i don't care who drafts him whether it's us or somebody else like if he's in the right opportunity in like five six years he's going to be averaging 25 a game like pretty easily <laughs> you know what i mean like he's he's super gifted and um he seems to be a perfect compliment to lonzo um i like his attitude just in the few interviews i've seen um what about his injury though his injury i'm a little concerned about that's where i'm kind of fading darius garland a little bit in my own draft big board at number four just yeah, because for sure. yeah i mean go ahead I mean, the medical team will look at that. Judy you know, we have a whole medical staff and and guys that are actually doctors who who look at these reports and and will give a an opinion on um, whether they think somebody's, you know, this is going to be a lingering problem or not. I mean, my my impression was it was a meniscus injury. Like Lonzo Ball had a meniscus injury and came back totally fine. Does that mean you want to draft somebody who's going to have issues and have to stay off the floor? Absolutely not. But it's not necessarily a deal breaker. Um, guys get hurt in, in uh, you know, it's 2019. Young guys get hurt and still play. It's it's not as much of a an issue as maybe it was like 15 years ago or 20 years ago when the the science was a little bit different with that kind of stuff. But if, if there are red flags in the report, then yes, definitely I would stay away. But for all the reasons I, I, I just said, I, I think he would be a really great option for us at four. And then I go to Deandre Hunter, who 
he's just so solid on both ends that it's, he's kind of like Brandon Clark in a way, in a sense. I mean, he's obviously much better offensively mm-hmm. than Brandon Clark and more developed as a better shooter and all that. But he's just really good at a lot of different things. It's like pretty alarming. I mean, I watch Virginia all throughout their, uh, their run in the, in the tournament this year. And it's, it's pretty alarming seeing a guy that big play basketball the way that he yeah. does. Cause it just doesn't look natural. It's like, I mean, this dude looks like an old school, like 19, I mean, maybe it's compared to the guys he's playing against, right. At the college level, but he kind of looks like a 1980s, like he looks like a 1980s power forward, but you see him like out there on the perimeter, like dribbling between his legs and like creating plays sometimes (laughs) and like shooting threes. And he's like very skilled. Um, and then on defense, he is just like a complete machine. I mean, he can guard anywhere two to five in the NBA, in my opinion. Um, so that would not be a bad fallback plan. And you could make a very strong argument that he is ready, going to be more ready to contribute uh, right away. I mean, my biggest concern with him is we have so many wings and we potentially could sign another given the wings that are available between like Kawhi and Katie and Jimmy Butler. And yeah, maybe people think we don't have a great chance of getting any of those guys, but there are so many wings available. We already have LeBron and Kuzma and Ingram. It it just feels like if we add a superstar type wing to the mix, I, I have a hard time seeing where Hunter gets minutes. But maybe you cross that bridge when the time comes. But and then I have Culver third, just because I think Culver Culver's a really interesting prospect. I really like watching him play. He's got a really smooth game, um, mm-hmm. and he kind of reminds you of like a like a young pony version of like a Kobe Bryant or like a Tracy McGrady, not in the sense of like, he is that guy, but like something about aesthetically, him, he looks like a wing superstar. <laughs> he looks like a wing superstar. I know exactly what you mean. Like he's got like, he's got good length. Um, he's got like the herky jerky moves. Um, but he's like so long. I mean, honestly, his measure, he looks longer for, maybe it's cause he wears short shorts, but like he looks longer <laughs> when he's out there on the court than I thought his measurements even showed. But, um, uh, he's a really interesting player, obviously huge defensive upside, obviously huge playmaking upside, which is a lot of teams don't have that at the two. I just, because we have BI, I don't think that that, skill set is as necessary for us as it is for other teams. If we did not have a guy at a non-traditional and we also have LeBron, but even discard uh getting rid of LeBron cuz you know maximum we have him for 3 more years, but a lot of guys are looking for that second ball handler that can take some of the pressure off the point guard and for a lot of teams they end up going with two guards or like two combo guards in the backcourt, but uh we have B.I., who's a 6'9 guy who has really good developed handles. He's actually, I think, the same age or maybe a year older only than Culver. B.I. is still, like, so young. Um, and he does all those things already for us. Um, if Culver was a knockdown shooter, this would be a different yeah. discussion, but he's not quite there. And I'm not saying he can't get there because his stroke looks pretty pure. Um, but mm-hmm. we've seen guys with pure strokes come into the league and just like completely with it. So it's hard to say, you know, put too many eggs in that basket. Like, oh, he'll definitely improve as a shooter. Um, so for that reason, I have him ranked third currently. Yeah, no, all those all those points are fair. And you have to take into account, too, that Lonzo Ball also handles the ball. I know that he's a good off ball sort of player, but 
we saw at times last year where he was marginalized because he wasn't able to create as much. And he actually does well when he's able to orchestrate an offense. So it's not only Ingram, it's not only LeBron, but put Lonzo Ball into the mix, put whoever we sign as a free agent into the mix. And, you know, the good thing with Jared Culver is he's not going to be the focal point. Far, He's going to be far from the focal point in this offense. And he will probably excel as a secondary creator off of guys like LeBron and all that stuff. But with regards to just usage and ball distribution and who's going to be able to actually create, he's going to have very, very limited opportunities. And yeah, it's a fair concern. Uh, Maybe that'll help him focus in on his jump shot instead and become a great off-ball shooter. But right now there are a lot of question marks regardless. Um, For me, really quickly, I have my big board at... I've actually shifted a little bit. Really, really like Darius Garland. He's definitely the sexiest pick right now. I think for Darius, outside of him just having very crafty handles and shake, it's his change of pace, change of speed that really gets you. And the fact that once he crosses you over, he has that blow-by ability. Like, he is De'Aaron Fox, like, John Wall fast. It's not like D'Angelo Russell where he'll use his uh, crafty dribbles and then put you in jail and, and do a little Steve Nash type stuff um Darius Garland is like if I have you on your heels and you bite one way I'm gone like I'm John Wall gone I'm Derek Rose gone yeah so that is not only does he have the handles he has the speed and then he has the ability to pull up even though he's going 200 miles an hour for a jump shot you know so all those things are representative of a very high level potentially um, three-level score in, in the NBA. Like someone who can shoot the three, especially off a of pull-up, someone who can use a pick-and-roll and also hit that mid-range jump shot, and then also someone who can take it to the rim, especially in transition because he's so fast. Um, so I really like Darius Garland, but I think the injury concerns, the fact that at the time of this recording he hasn't taken any contact yet is really concerning, especially because he got his meniscus tear like at the start of the NCAA season last year like in November. The fact that he's not taking contact yet is a is a pretty big red flag. And considering that the Lakers are currently have been dealing with in the last two years, injury-prone players in Brandon Ingram and Lonzo Ball, I'm not sure if they're willing to take on that additional injury risk, um, regardless of whether or not Judy Sato's back and whoever else they hire on their staff. Um, so I actually have DeAndre Hunter at number one. For, for all the reasons Tommy mentioned, DeAndre Hunter is just so solid figuratively, but also literally. You just look at his physique. That is a he's he that is a dude in a man's body playing college basketball. I've compared him to Jay Crowder in Aaron Gordon's body. Just imagine Jay Crowder hitting threes and being able to handle the ball a little bit and create on the perimeter, but in Aaron Gordon's body. He doesn't have the same athleticism as Aaron Gordon, but in terms of the build and physique, he is a bull. It's almost like watching Julius Randle, but more refined and has a lot of really good fundamentals to his game, where every dribble that DeAndre Hunter takes is a purposeful dribble. And he just is able to hit that pull-up mid-range jump shot really well and very effectively too. Um, And then I have Jarrett Culver and Darius Garland kind of neck and neck. Um, Jarrett Culver is a really smooth player. I see the potential there. Uh, He has Karis Lavertish type length and smoothness to his play but I also can see right now with uh the the concerns over his broken jump shot a more slightly built less athletic Andre Iguodala in terms of 
the template that he provides. He can play make. He's a really he has really good vision as a passer. Uh, he can handle the ball like Andre Iguodala did coming into the league. Um, the other thing, though, that I don't think Andre Iguodala even had when he was at his heights as a 20-point scorer is that Jared Culver is a very good mid-range pull-up jump shooter. Uh, he's got a lot in his bag in the mid-range. Uh, I, I, I know people at the draft combine compared him to De- DeMar DeRozan, and he seemed to like that comp. I know that's going to scare a lot of Lakers fans off, but... I mean, this guy has a turnaround jump shot to his game. He is really good shooting off a dribble and just pulling up, which is nice. And his pull-up mid-range jump shot actually looks more fluid than his off-the-catch three-point jump shot. So that's what gives me hope with his off-ball shooting eventually. Um, but yeah, I, I really like Jared Culver. And if it wasn't for the injury concerns with Darius Garland, I'd probably have Darius over him. But right now, they're neck and neck. So... Um, we'll just have to see how the individual workouts go with the Lakers and, and what they value the most. My last question to you, Tommy, is given how much we've oozed over Brandon Clark, would you be surprised if the Lakers just drafted Clark at number four? I wouldn't be that surprised. Uh, this is a weird year. A lot of people are going to talk about it. I'm sure Cole will talk about it, but I know like most years we say like, oh, after one, there's a drop or after one and two, there's a drop. This year is weird because it feels like you could make a compelling case that like anybody, you know, number two through eight can really go any position. I mean, you could make a, maybe this is too crazy to put, take Brandon Clark at number two, but you could make a case, you know what Mm -hmm. I mean? And, And I just feel like that's not super typical. I mean, Brandon Clark, I think when guys get him in the gym and do their own individual testing, his stock is just going to continue to skyrocket. Um, he is a little bit older. I think he'll, he's 22 currently. Um, he'll be 22 when he's drafted, but he'll be 23 by the time the NBA season starts. So he is a little bit older than a lot of the uh, guys who are currently mocked in the top 10, but at some level it's like, okay, so you're losing a couple years on the front end maybe, but you're getting a guy who's more developed and we're one of those rare teams that's picking in the top five that is looking for a more developed player. Usually you're looking for the greatest upside, but we might just view Brandon Clark as being such a sure thing um, that we take him for. But I think if we really, really, really love Clark as much as whoever we would otherwise take it for, maybe they, they at that point look into trade down options. Um, But uh, it's, it's so hard to predict those types of things because you need another team that's willing to trade up um, that other team has to have the assets, you know, that you're looking for to trade down. And then there has to be some sort of demand for the player that you're going to take at number four. That's why I'm like, if RJ Barrett slips, that could cause some, so a little bit of chaos because that's the type of guy that some teams like, you know, the bulls or the Suns or the Hawks or like some of these teams that felt like they slipped out like way too much, which I mean, they frankly did. Um, who are looking to get like an impact player that that might be the type of guy they trade up for, or um, maybe Darius Garland is that guy for some team, or maybe Culver is that guy for some team, or maybe Hunter is that guy for some team. So that kind of stuff will become a little bit more clear in the weeks to come, but there's a lot of factors. So it's always hard to predict a a trade down. Yep, definitely. And at a certain point, if those don't materialize, maybe the Lakers just 
realize that they're not going to fiddle around, play around, and just take Clark at four, and I don't think we'd have any qualms about that. Uh, with that said, we are now going to turn it over to my interview with Cole Zwicker. First, we're going to pitch it to our sponsors, and then me and Cole will catch you guys after the turn. And uh, yeah, draft, draft, draft. All right, so we're back, and it's a tradition unlike any other. Our first days of summer solstice here on the Lakers Legacy Pod. Back for the fourth year in a row, we welcome the venerable Mr. Cole Zwicker. Cole, welcome to the show. I asked Tommy this in our intro, but are you a wingspan or Max Vert kind of guy? <laughs> uh, I'm functionally both. It depends on how it applies to the floor. I think that's the safe answer. But uh, happy to be back, man. I think this is the first podcast I ever did for the draft was you guys. And yes. uh, awesome to be back for the third time. Personally, for me, I'm starting to become more of a shuttle run type of guy myself. But you know how <laughs> that goes. But yeah, we're super glad to have you back on the show. And congratulations on your last year getting the opportunity to consult for an NBA team. Before we get started, if you want to give any plugs for anything you're currently working on or have coming down the pipeline, please go ahead and do so. Sure. So as usual, at thestepian.com, I am writing a pretty detailed piece on the shot making slash pull up shooting component of these class of lead guards combo guards as well so it'll be something that will apply to lakers fans at number four we have darius garland kobe white probably won't go for but it's at least valuable to contextualize those two and of course john morant who is the overwhelming favorite to go number two overall so likely not going to be in play for the lakers but just looking at a holistic view of those three guys along with carson edwards shamori pons and justin wright foreman just like the six best pull-up shooters in the class and kind of how they how i see them translating to the nba game so look for that on the site and we have new articles going up pretty much every day. If you want to listen to draft coverage via podcast, I hop on Sam Bassini's Game Theory podcast usually once a week. I'll probably do that tomorrow sometime, so be on the lookout for that as well. Awesome. Uh, tonight's episode is actually going to run like a Sam Vecini Game Theory podcast because we're going to partially talk about the draft, but also partially talk about trade scenarios, leverage plays, and all that jazz. But yeah, you know, Cole, for better or for worse, it's just like old times. The Lakers are at the top of the lottery. <laughs> but this year, with way more intrigue than we thought we'd have during this time of the year, I swear one of these days we'll be in the playoffs and we can finally focus on all those hipster picks down in the late first to mid second. <laughs> but for now, we've got the juicy content for you. Not only, like I said, because we're going to be talking about the top of the draft, but also talking about trade possibilities for the Lakers as well. Um, so let's get right down into it. First off, what was your initial reaction to how the new lottery odds system played out and the Lakers getting number four and how the top four in general ended up shaking out in this very Hollywoody, intriguing <laughs> sort of way? The only way I think it could have been more intriguing was if the Celtics had jumped in, not number one, of course, because then that would have flipped to the Sixers, but if the Celtics had jumped into the top four as well. But uh, all things considered, yeah, what, what, did, what did you think? I think my first reaction was we have New York and LA in the top four. Both of those teams we know are probably looking to be sellers here, and they're trying to load up for free agency, get star caliber players, star caliber talent. So the Lakers jumping up seven spots just reinforces and enhances the value of their pick for a trade potentially. And we know mm -hmm. this, this has been kind of presented as a three-person draft. I think that's being too wide scope for Zion Williamson. I think if you're going to call it any player draft, it's a one-player draft just because he's so much better sure. than everybody else. But I think for the consensus NBA think, maybe the fourth pick in the class doesn't have as much value as the traditional fourth pick in a class just because there is some perceived drop-off after RJ at three, which we think he's going to go to New York or whoever selects number three ultimately. But I guess overall, my, my overall takeaway was just getting New York and LA both in the top four, both teams that want to actually 
look into trading their pick. They're not in Memphis situation where they're looking to build long term. It's more about immediate return. So that just made it all all the more fascinating. Yeah, and obviously with New Orleans getting the number one pick, that eliminated the scenario of New Orleans wants Zion Williamson in a trade package. So the question now is, what's the next best trade package or what's the next best draft pick after that? And I think the Lakers and the Knicks moved up enough spots to improve their trade packages while it's still not looking like a rig. (laughs) But with that said, (laughs) um, so first off, do you think Anthony Davis... And this is hard to tell, of course, but in your your gut feeling, do you think Anthony Davis is going to be moved on draft day? And it can even be in principle, so the trade happens after free agency and whatnot, after these rookies sign their deals. Or do you think David Griffin will actually take this through free agency in order to see what happens with the Boston Celtics and Kyrie Irving? There is some risk involved with doing that, of course, based off of who teams end up signing. Or do you think he takes it even further into the start of the season? What's your gut feeling right now? I think I would choose the second option via taking a little bit more time into free agency a little bit just to see all the situations manifest. It's going to be pretty much the similar offers depending on what happens with Kyrie. Like you noted, does he stay? Does that cause, does that create more of an immediate gratification trade for them where they're more amenable to trading Jason Tatum? I think that's the main question here is will Boston include Tatum in any package for the Lakers? Like, on draft night, there, there's one situation where the Pelicans could be like, we want this very specific player at number four. If they're enamored with Jarrett Culver, if they're enamored with Darius Garland, that would be the incentive to deal on draft night because then you could convey that to the Lakers. And if the Lakers take their own guy and that's not someone that the Pelicans want later on in free agency, for example, that makes dealing with the Lakers a little bit more convoluted. But I still think that the benefits of waiting to see what Boston what their situation is post Kyrie, does Al Horford stay, all of that, that's probably worth the wait because they're still probably going to get mm-hmm. R.J. Barrett from the Knicks. That's still going to be the player that the, the Knicks likely select. It's not going anywhere. So really, I only see the only moving part here would be the Lakers pick at four and how the Pelicans view that asset. Sure. We'll get into more Anthony Davis talk in a second, but with regards to the Lakers and keeping or trading this pick, Obviously, it stands to reason because of LeBron James' timeline and the amount of young developing kids the Lakers still have that the Lakers would trade this pick one way or another. If it's not for Anthony Davis, maybe for more established veteran help. And in a vacuum, I'd agree. But this year, they also have salary cap implications to be mindful of. As everybody knows, they're looking to hopefully sign a max free agent this summer to pair alongside LeBron James, whether that's Kawhi Leonard, Kyrie Irving, or we go down to Kemba Walker, Jimmy Butler, or even the Vuceviches of the world. So if it's not for Anthony Davis and to a lesser extent, Bradley Beal, if you take those two out of the equation, in my opinion, there are not very many options who I deem worth it for the Lakers to one, jeopardize their cap space for, or two, if they do use their cap space to then trade the number four and all of their young guys to match salary and bring in a quote-unquote star in for the sake of doing so. So let's take Anthony Davis and Bradley Beal off the table. Do you still think that the Lakers would be more likely to trade that pick in, in that scenario, knowing that they can't really take back that much salary if they're looking to free agency first? It's a really tough question just because outside of Beal, like you noted, he's the obvious guy who's going to 
probably going to be in a situation where the team is looking to trade him just because they're in a very natural rebuilding stage with Wall's injury and everything that's happened with them. Maybe a potential new general manager or a vice president of basketball operations or whatnot. You just surveyed a league and how many players are tradable that the Lakers would probably deem star worthy. I, I just don't see that many situations. Like Jimmy Butler has a player option. He's probably going to opt out. He's not going to be a free agent. So you just go down the list and there's a lot of... Or, uh, sorry, he's going to be a free agent so he won't be acquired via trade. Yeah. So there's just not a lot of tradable guys who the LA, like you noted, is going to want to take up a bunch of their cap space. I think they're probably look more towards the free agent route and say, even a Chris Middleton type, are we going to be able to trade for someone of his caliber? So why not just keep the cap space? Right. And we can we can quickly go down the list of, okay, so there's the Mike Conley's, Kyle Lowry's, Drew Holiday's, and Draymond Green's of the world, right? And these, I, I feel like these types of guys would be absolute last resorts for the Lakers because some of these teams may actually ask for more than just the number four pick straight up. They may ask for you to include a Kyle Kuzma or a Josh Hart. And then on top of it, in doing so, they're also foregoing a lot of cap space. You know, Kyle Lowry is on a 28 plus million dollar contract and Mike Conley is on a 32 million dollar contract. That more than eats up into your cap space because the $7 million that the draft pick holds does not offset enough of that amount to give you much left over to work with. If the Lakers do end up trading for these guys, it would be as a last resort because they struck out in free agency and weren't able to get anybody to take their money, in which case, fine, let's just take Mike Conley into our cap space or Drew Holiday into our cap space. But the only way to even make it quote-unquote worth it is if we only had to give up the fourth pick. Even if we just traded the number four pick straight up for Mike Conley, that would mean that we we failed in the offseason. And if the Lakers are adamant about keeping their max cap space while also finding a trade partner for that number four pick, in order to not jeopardize that amount they're keeping and preserving for a seven to nine year max, the Lakers would have to find a player who's only making $7 million because that is the cap hold that that number four pick is taking up currently. And we know that right now, that pick being on the Lakers books for $7 million does not really impede them from signing a max guy. But the list of good players who are only making 7 to $9 million who are worth trading the number four pick for is very small. And the teams that hold those types of players probably do not want to relinquish that player because that player is likely going to be a recent lotto pick from one of the last two drafts because those are the only good types of players making that amount of money unless you got a random bargain steal like Robert Covington or Spencer Dinwiddie. But in summary, I think it goes... If an AD deal is available, if a Bradley Beal deal is available, then the Lakers will 100% trade their number four pick. But outside of those two guys, it's really hard to find a scenario that makes it worth it for the Lakers to give up that pick, jeopardize their cap space, and if they're not jeopardizing their cap space, even finding a team willing to give up a young star, which makes trading the number four pick far from a certainty. Yeah, I think that's probably reasonable. And like a guy like Lowry, for example, he does make over 30. He makes 33.4 million next year. Yeah, and I'm trying to put myself in the shoes of the Lakers and how they think about their cap space and how they value themselves as a free agent destination. So I think that we can say, yeah, Mike Conley would definitely help LeBron. But is that 
is that setting your sights high enough for the Lakers? Because they're always going to think we want the premier talent of the league. I don't see them dealing, you know, number four plus Kuzma or Ingram or Lonzo for Mike Conley just because yeah. of his age and injury history. And he would definitely help LeBron short term. No question. It would be a better team next year. But I don't think that's high enough. That's not setting the bar high enough for what I think the Lakers are going to approach this as. Yeah, and I think just asset evaluation wise, like I said, you're jeopardizing cap space and you're losing some of your young core guys when in an alternate scenario, not to say that this is going to happen, but you could come out of the summer with a a max guy for nothing, giving up nothing for a max guy and still have all of your assets at your disposal, right? In this scenario, you're trading for Mike Conley and what's your team going to look like then? You know you're capped out or going to be near capped out and can only sign ancillary pieces at that point for the next two years or so. You're going to have Mike Conley, LeBron James, and maybe Lonzo Ball and Brandon Ingram when you could have had number four pick Kyle Kuzma, Josh Hart as well. So I think even from an asset evaluation standpoint, it just is just not worth it for the Lakers to trade for guys of that caliber, even though they are really talented players, all-star level guys. With that said, let's move back into the Anthony Davis angle and analyzing Anthony Davis trade packages. What is it going to take, in your opinion, for the Lakers to get David Griffin to bat an eye and re-engage? Obviously, circumstances have changed since the Lakers presented their godfather offer of all the young guys, pretty much, at the trade deadline. For example, Lakers jumped into the number four. Uh, Brandon Ingram, during that time span, developed that DVT injury. He's been medically cleared now, but you know opposing GMs will use that against the Lakers as leverage. Um, David Griffin assumed the general manager's spot for the New Orleans Pelicans. Boston is now in a precarious situation because they're not sure what's going to happen to Kyrie Irving. New York Knicks, they have the number three pick. And then lastly, just more time in general has passed from then till now, and AD is now legit just a one-year rental. So all those things have kind of changed the circumstances, but in your eyes, if you're David Griffin, in order to re-engage the Lakers, would they need to pretty much put that same package that they had at the trade deadline in front of you for you to even re-engage? Yes, and absolutely at draft time. Like I want everything if I'm trading him during the draft. If I'm going to take the risk and and go into this Laker deal without knowing for sure what the Boston fallout's going to be, it's tough. It's kind of the eye of the beholder with David Griffin and what he values in prospects because I, I don't think there's like a clear winning package here unless Boston trades Tatum. And I, I'm not even as high on Tatum as some people are. I think he's a very good player and I think he's, he can play off Zion Williamson really well, but I don't think he's like this difference-making talent. I also don't think the Pelicans are going to get a legitimate difference-maker in this trade. You rarely do when you deal superstars. So looking at these teams, like LA I think would have to offer at least three of Ingram, Lonzo, the number four pick, Kuzma, Hart. They might get off of not dealing Hart in the package or maybe they get, you know, get to keep Kuzma or something like that. But I think that like three of those mainstay assets are definitely going to have to be in this deal at draft time, mm-hmm. especially maybe the Lakers run the risk and say, Hey, we don't think you can beat this offer. We're going to wait until free agency as well to see if, you know, Boston falls out of this. I don't know if that would be worth the risk because I think the opportunity to get a top 10 player, it just rarely happens this way to get like a legit legitimate game changer. Even if it's for one year, I think the Lakers would bet on themselves, of course, in the market, it's a really tough question, man. It just kind of depends on what the offers are. Like, if Kawhi goes to the Clippers, Shea Alexander is a really good prospect. The David Griffin might value him more than anything in the Lakers package. It just comes down to what he values and what he's trying to build around Zion. Right. And, you know, there's that old adage, the market will set the price. And in this case, the trade packages. Although for the Lakers, it's a little bit different because, of course, they're the Lakers. But in that respect, let's say the Lakers catch wind of what the New York Knicks are offering or what the Boston Celtics are offering or can't offer. 
you, you just mentioned that maybe they can keep a Kuzma or a Hart, but is there any sort of leverage game that the Lakers can play here? Let's say, for example, the Lakers somehow know by draft day that they're going to get a max guy. Can they use that to their advantage by telling, well, they're not going to tell David Griffin, but but let's just <laughs> say that they know they have a max guy coming in the wings. Does that change things? Does that make them less desperate to swing all their depth for Anthony Davis? Or does it make them more power hungry to make a superstar trade at the end of this? Because they can agree to an Anthony Davis trade in principle and facilitate that trade after they've made their max signing or whatever. But do you think there's anything to that with regards to, hey, if the Lakers know they have Kawhi in the bag or even Jimmy Butler and they let New Orleans know, hey, either trade us Anthony Davis for a reasonable price or what we deem as a reasonable price or we're good with Kawhi and keeping our young guys. Oh, and if there's a more reasonable trade or deal that opens up for us midseason, we'd rather take that deal over guttering our roster for Anthony Davis. So good luck trying to find a palatable offer from another team. <laughs> it's a it's a great question, honestly. Like it's, it, I think there's enough other demand from other teams to where sure. I don't think that David Griffin's going to take that bait. He'll just turn around and be like, okay, well, the Knicks situation, the Knicks are going to be desperate too. Let's say yeah. Kevin Durant agrees to go there or something, and maybe Kyrie Irving. It's like, then we know that they're probably going to want to trade for Anthony Davis, or at least try to. They have some assets. I don't think the Knicks' assets are tremendous. I, if they trade Mitchell Robinson, I think they, they, they basically have to. I think that increases their offer. But I'm not sure, again, how David Griffin would value Mitchell Robinson, who's a rim-running type, next to Zion when he would just clog the floor for Zion on his drive. So that just goes into the dynamic of team fit and like what David Griffin's valuations of these players are. But getting back to your point, I do think that there's enough outside demand other than the Lakers. You have Boston on the clock. You have the Knicks on the clock. Same with the Clippers. Like They could all be desperate enough to for David Griffin to capitalize on. So I'm not sure if the Lakers say, yeah, we have Kawhi lined up, and that's like a dream scenario, right? If anything yeah. less than that, like Jimmy Butler, the Pelicans will probably just be like, well, that's not really going to move the needle necessarily if you just have Jimmy Butler and LeBron. That's still really good, but you're not a championship-level team. So there's still leverage there. I mean, if they lined up Kawhi and LeBron, then you start to to really get interesting as far as moving forward. I, I don't think that Kawhi is going to play with LeBron, but we'll see. Like, that would be the kind of guy to where I think that would maybe swing some back in LA's fashion. But again, you still have to consider dynamics and the market demand from other teams, which I still think is going to be high. Sure. And, and the New York Knicks, actually, I think their biggest trade asset are those Dallas Mavericks first rounders, which I think in 2020, it's like an unprotected, not, not 2020, maybe 2021, it's an unprotected pick. Yeah, it's, it's a first available pick. So after this one lapses, it becomes unprotected first available. So it's it could have theoretical value. But again, Dallas has one of the best young cores in the league. So it might not be. Yeah, that's fair. Um, yeah, everything you said makes makes total sense to me. I think the New Orleans Pelicans have enough options and including some dark horse options, as we've seen the last few years with, uh, you know, the Oklahoma City Thunder and the the Toronto Raptors, usually the team that swings these types of deals are the ones who are already semi-competitive and are willing to take that risk on. So we haven't even gotten into what types of teams could emerge in that respect. So the Denver Nuggets or the Portland Trailblazers, if they want to give up CJ McCollum, although the New Orleans Pelicans likely want to start from scratch. But for you, let's say that you're the Lakers GM. I know you said you'd give up anything for Anthony Davis, but is there... Where would you draw the line for the Lakers, knowing that they have max cap space, they have all these assets? In your opinion, do you think, okay, I'm just going to put it all in, go all in for Anthony Davis, or is there a better way to manage this that 
And, and obviously, maybe the Lakers aren't in a position to do this. They just got to strike quickly if the opportunity presents itself. But from an asset management standpoint, if you're the Lakers GM, where would you draw the line? If if you know that David Griffin is kind of um, twisting your arm and you know that the offers out there compared to yours don't really match up, but because there's the Los Angeles Lakers tax that you have to pay and the spite <laughs> factor, if that exists, maybe you just walk away at that point. And, and I said this on Twitter where I was like, look, it is my preference just because, you know, there's that inherent fan dynamic of things where you just want to see your young guys grow right you want to see the guys that you've invested in you know make it to the top so for me my preference is I'd I'd rather not to say that I don't want Anthony Davis obviously that's crazy but I would rather address the Lakers quote-unquote superstar concerns in free agency first see what happens and if they get even if it's just Jimmy Butler then see what you can do with your assets later. Maybe even take a wait-and-see approach three months into the season, knowing that you have Jimmy Butler, LeBron James, and this treasure trove of assets that you can flip down the road, but not all at once like you'd have to for Anthony Davis. So for you, if you're the GM, is there a walking away point? And, and the deal that I said that I'd be conflictedly okay with would be number four pick, Brandon Ingram, or sorry, number four pick and two of Lonzo Ball, Brandon Ingram, or Kyle Kuzma. Maybe add in a Josh Hart and then two future first rounders. Um, so for you, yeah, is there a walking away point? For me, I think it involves the protection on the future first. Like if we're talking about like two unprotected picks after LeBron retires that becomes more untenable mm. for me. Like I'm not trying to trade future assets that could be the number one pick when LeBron walks away or is outside his he's already moving outside of his prime but when he hangs him up I don't want to be owing the Pelicans a potential number one overall pick I think that's where it can the concern points for me I don't mind trading any of the young players on the roster right now I like basically all the Lakers young guys I don't think any of them really have top 10 player equity and there's just such a gap between even a top 10 player and a top 20 player that it's just it's impossible to get guys like Davis so I would try to get him now I wouldn't play this weight game and see, oh, well, let's wait another year for him to come. We, we've seen how that works out, like Paul George. It, it's it's very player-specific, so Anthony Davis might be hell-bent on coming to L.A. I, I have no idea. I don't have inside information on that. But I don't see anybody on the current roster, plus a reasonable future picks, even if it's two reasonable future firsts that are protected somewhat. So maybe like one's lottery protected, one's top five protected. You just got to get some kind of protection that protects the very top of those classes when LeBron leaves. So that would be my walking away point. And if Griffin wanted to do a bunch of pick swaps and drafts, I would think about that in the short term. Again, just because I feel like if you put LeBron next to Anthony Davis, you're not talking about probably a high draft pick. I'm more concerned with that window, that transition period between the next stars and the Lakers. I think that is where you can really get hurt by potentially giving up a number one pick in a, in a, in a year that you just can't afford to do that. Sure, definitely. And that all that is super fair. Let's talk about Brandon Ingram. Obviously, his injury is going to hurt negotiations one way or another, regardless of whether or not he's been medically cleared, because it's a leverage play, right? How does also his upcoming restricted free agency this next summer change things? How highly do you think David Griffin will let it show that he even values Brandon Ingram? At this point, how would you grade Brandon Ingram as a trade asset because of his injury and because of his upcoming restricted free agency as well, where he's going to get paid? 
Well, you can bet your ass that Griffith's going to mention both of those factors in negotiations. I mean, especially the the contract, because there's really one more year and you got to pay him. It's the same thing with Jalen Brown with the Celtics, though. So it's like you have to look at these guys and say, is the number four pick more valuable even than Brandon Ingram, even with what Ingram's shown because you have that cost control for four years instead of having being on the time, being on the clock basically to max. I don't know if Ingram's going to get maxed out for sure, but these pedigree guys that are high draft picks that come in with those strong priors, they get more money than you think. So I think that that's definitely going to be a vantage point that David Griffin argues. And this, again, goes back to what we talked about with him and team building and would he prefer just that cost-controlled asset or having a guy essentially for one year before you have to make a really, really big decision on him. So for me, yeah. it's it's going to be that's going to be part of the negotiation. And I think that's going to be, to answer your question succinctly, I don't know where that leaves Ingram's value in a trade because you're not just dealing for the player. You're dealing for the injury concerns, but more importantly, you're dealing for a shorter purview into a guy's fit on your team. You don't get a lot of time to really suss this stuff out. You have to make a quick decision, and that's absolutely going to be a factor in this analysis. And I think because of that fact, David Griffin may just insist that, no, we're getting all three of Brandon Ingram, Kyle Kuzma, and Lonzo Ball plus that number four pick. I do have a counter argument, though, to... (laughs) to the Brandon Ingram injury and restricted free agency thing. Because, okay, if you're going to use the DVT injury against me, right? Well, I'll go back to Griffin and say, if there is concern with his DVT injury, then that's just going to drive his market value down. So on the flip side, you have a great opportunity (laughs) to get Brandon Ingram at a bargain price the way that the Golden State Warriors got Steph Curry. Not to say that he's going to be Steph Curry, but you know what I'm saying in terms of he's extension eligible. And even if you go into next summer and have him scan the market, if you're really concerned about that injury, then he may not even get near max. You know, you may get Brandon Ingram on a $20 million contract and one that's favorable for you. Do you think that's a good counter argument? <laughs> I like this kind of mock negotiation going on here. I, I do think that's going to be a point that's brought up too. I mean, it's it's all out of the holder. Does David Griffin really buy that argument in full? Sure. I'm, I'm not sure. And we're, and we're not talking about these guys as like super cheap assets either. I mean, both Lonzo and Ingram, you know, top two picks. You know, Lonzo's on the books for $8.7 million next year, and his team option his fourth year is $11 million. So I, I think that Lonzo can be worth that, absolutely. And I would, I would definitely take a shot on Lonzo for sure. But Griffin might just view that as it's too expensive. He's not that kind of player. Maybe we could allocate those funds differently. It's just really hard to know without knowing more about his philosophy. I would think, though, again, this just comes back to building around Zion Williamson. We've even heard Griffin say, though, that he's not really going to deal Drew Holiday. And, we, and that's a leverage play. It's not like he's going to come out and be like, we're dealing Drew Holiday right, right, right. now for leverage, right? But it, it's going to be really fascinating to see. Does he take the, the, a similar approach as the last Pelicans regime, which immediately started trading picks to to build around Anthony Davis with more like younger established players? But I don't think Griffin's going to do that, but that would, act, that would factor in here as well. So... As we sussed out during this discussion, there's a lot of options. There's a lot of variants as far as how these contract and these trade talks could go. It's going to be really fascinating to to work itself out because I feel like this could be a significant offseason as far as player movement and, and how it kind of shapes the league. There's so many permutations that play into all of these trade negotiations and even just what's going to happen movement-wise in the draft this year. We haven't even talked about, you know, potential three-team trade scenarios, right, that the Lakers can avail of if, let's say, David Griffin isn't so fond of Brandon Ingram or Alonzo Ball, because maybe he really does want to start from scratch. And, you know, there's a couple teams, and I know you were on a, a Suns podcast recently, there are a couple teams that could use some of the Lakers' assets or have interest in what the Lakers have 
in Lonzo Ball, whether that's Lonzo Ball or the number fourth pick. My first question to you is, let's say the New Orleans Pelicans want the number two pick. What do you think it's going to take this year to move up from number four or number three to get that number two pick? Would the Lakers need to include someone like a Kyle Kuzma in the number four to get the number two and then, you know, ship that onward to the New Orleans Pelicans? Like, do you have a, I don't know if you have a gauge at this point of what it's going to take to get Ja Morant. It seems like it's going to take a a bit more just because this draft is being framed so much as a three-player draft. I think that Memphis will definitely use that in negotiations. And a lot of teams, most every team, I think, has Zion 1, Morant 2. It's viewed that way. So that perception has a lot of value. That That carries a lot of strength as far as how it's analyzed. So Memphis could be like, okay, moving down two spots. What if that's a different tier of prospect for us? Do we want is Kyle Kuzma good enough to to justify that trade down? You know, we saw last year in a much better draft. I, I think Atlanta had both Trey Young and Luka Doncic in the same tier, so we see Atlanta be okay moving down two spots for a future lottery pick. It, it just depends on the class. I don't know how John Morant's viewed from every organization. That's just, that's really tough. So I, I think if the Lakers are like, we'll trade you Lonzo Ball in a future first to move up two spots plus number four. Like they can make an offer if they really want to get two. I don't think it's a class that you can't get number two, but I do think the threshold for that value wise, Memphis is going to want a little bit more than you'd think. Yeah, that's fair. Let's say Phoenix does want to engage the Lakers in a three-team trade to help facilitate an Anthony Davis deal. What do you think they could offer for Lonzo Ball that would... I guess, be enticing to the New Orleans Pelicans? Like, would number six, Elia Kobo, your favorite, D'Anthony Melton, <laughs> and a future first do it? Or do you think they need to add something else to that package to get Alonzo Ball? It's really tough. I think that they have the trade capabilities to do it. They have, I think they have the assets with number six, and it depends on how their ancillary guys are viewed. Like, is Elia Kobo's, is his cost-effective contract going to be valued? Uh their other young guys are not going to trade Mikhail Bridges. He's going to be off the market. I don't I don't see them moving him unless it's for a legitimate star, which you can't really say about Lonzo right now. So their top three guys with Booker, Aiton, Mikhail, those guys are kind of untouchable. Josh Jackson doesn't have any trade value. He's kind of an yes. underwater contract <laughs> right now. He's not good. So that's, that's a problem. And then that really hinders their flexibility as far as trades. If he was competent, we'd be looking at a, a pretty good, decent arsenal to get a trade done it just kind of depends does number six for Lonzo even does that I think some teams would would do that frankly on even both sides it kind of depends on what your perception of Lonzo is but I do think that if they wanted to include future first they could get a trade done like that just the question of would they what would the protections be would that be worth it for them but I think from a Phoenix standpoint they're looking more like okay we'll trade you number six for Lonzo I think that's a fair trade I'm not sure if that gets it done And maybe they throw in TJ Warren, too, because his contract is kind of cost-effective as well. But I don't know how other teams necessarily view TJ Warren as just a six-man scoring type. Exactly. But yeah, it'll be interesting to see if they can even... At this point, it's like getting so complicated that... I think this is where trades usually end up on draft day, right? Where you're you're trying to bring in third teams, and then it just gets so convoluted that the deals end up just falling apart. Um, Yep. With that said, we can move on to... And this is not the end of my hypotheticals, Cole. We can move on to the draft. <laughs> but before we do, I'll pitch it over to our sponsors first, and then we'll catch you guys after the turn. All right, Cole, let's take a little bit of a breather from all my crazy permutations and hypotheticals and talk about the NBA draft, the 2019 NBA draft. Like we mentioned, Anthony Davis' deal is probably not likely. And then from there, we still don't know what the Washington Wizards are going to do with Bradley Beal as they continue their GM search. That hasn't been solidified yet, right? They're still looking. 
Correct. Yeah, so we don't know how that's going to net out. So you take those two guys out of the equation, and the Lakers, at least for a little bit, till free agency shakes out, they're kind of sitting ducks. So they're likely going to be drafting a player, a tangible player, and someone will go up there to the podium and have a Lakers hat and put it on. For how long he'll be a Laker, we don't know. But with that said, (laughs) first and foremost, what's your top five in this year's draft, Cole? Yeah, that's a really complex question because I think a lot of these guys are, are fit dependent. Zion's clearly tier one for me. And yeah. then I, I have nobody in tier two. Just for context, I would have Jaron Jackson and Trey Young last year in tier two. I actually had just Jaron at that time. But as far as a reference point to other classes, I would vault Trey Young up. So there are a bunch of tier three guys to me, which are very capable starters. I think there may, there's a little bit of like, I guess, quote unquote, all-star upside, but I don't see really the upside, the realizable upside that contributes to winning for a lot of these guys. So I have I have your traditional John Morant, RJ Barrett, Jarrett Culver, Brandon Clark is a guy that I really like and I would have in this tier. But again, it comes down to situation. It's If he goes to the to Timberwolves and car- plays next to Carl Anthony Towns, who's already shown the ability to carry like a top seven offense because he's just so outlandishly good on that end and Clark can kind of just play that role player you know team defense protect the rim really help Towns out defensively I think that's an awesome fit because Carl Towns can space the floor so you have a lot of safety in that projection if you put Brandon Clark on a team with no shooting in the front court you could cause like a Utah dynamic where you have Gobert with favors and favors isn't a gravity threat on three. So that's just a long winded way of saying that I think for a lot of these prospects this year it is fit dependent and that is kind of you see this across history too it's not like last year where there's just like four or five guys that will thrive anywhere like this year you need the right fit so that's why I don't have like an ironed out tier system with like a specific order this year just because I think there's fluctuation based on the destination yeah no that makes sense next question what type of draft is this I know that's super vague but if you're looking for complementary role player types outside of Zion of course is this the draft for you is this a draft that would be good for a team to trade down in and to follow up on that question, if, if, it, if it is a weak draft like everybody's saying it is, or, or at least scarce in superstar type talent, how incentivized are teams like Atlanta to actually trade up if everything's kind of sort of the same? <laughs> now, that's the million dollar question is like what teams are really going to trade up in this class if it's not to like two, for example. I think some teams would try to get Morant. Is there going to be a lot of trade demand and value for the fourth pick, the fifth pick? And I think last year, it's different when the talent is deeper in that second tier. I think that's this is the best way I can explain it is by example. And guys, you don't have a Jaron Jackson in this class where I feel comfortable really taking him at two or three. And that reflects on how I view these guys. I think what you noted as far as trading down, that's been the pillar of what I've been saying about this class, you know, extending back seven months. It's Zion one. And then after that, I would feel more comfortable trading back for multiple bites at the apple, trading for maybe a lower level, more established player that has some upside. I, I would definitely look to move the pick. And of course, that invokes the the Lakers and Hawks because the Hawks have eight and 10. Would they really move up to four? Do they, do they like someone like Cameron Reddish enough to do that? It's been rumored that they really like him. He could actually fall to eight. There's scenarios I would be surprised. But do they view Reddish in a different tier compared to other guys they could probably get at eight or 10? That's tough. Again, that comes into the eye of the beholder. If the Lakers could do that trade, I would jump all over that. Sure. And in your opinion, do you think that there are probably tons of teams that want to trade down, but maybe there's not enough teams who want to trade up? That's the general <laughs> sentiment. 
Yeah, exactly. I don't think there's that. I, I mean, I guess the honest answer is I don't know. I don't know if a team really values Garland. Maybe a team has Garland in a different tier than Kobe White, and they're like, this is the last kind of lead guard-esque player that we really feel confident in, and we feel like it's worth it to jump from eight to four. Of course, that wouldn't be the Hawks because they have Trey Young, but just another example of a team. So I the beholder, situational fit. I, I just don't think there's going to be quite the same demand to get into the top five this year. I can say that pretty concretely. It's not viewed as this you have to get into the top five to get that high level of a prospect. I think a lot of teams could view it as I would rather have multiple lottery picks and, and pick an eight or 10 than I would drafting three. Maybe you think RJ will have the trade value, but a lot of teams don't draft that way. If they can't make a, a draft night trade, they don't look at it down the road and say, we're going to take this player for trade value. Like Buddy Heald ended up being one of the best picks in 2016 mm-hmm. because one owner viewed him as incredibly valuable and that got a Boogie Cousins trade done. And of course, a, a bunch of ancillary effects happened after that buddy became the second best shooter in the league and boogie had tremendous injury issues which is really unfortunate but you can kind of just see a lot of the draft process is is not that fluid because people can have different opinions but i do think the nba usually comes to consensus about ranges so you see when they say there's it's a three-player draft you should listen to that because that perception has a lot of value so if it's the fourth or the fifth or the sixth pick trading down is there really going to be that high a demand to really move up and fill the gap it just depends on the team Right. So let's go with the hypothetical that Atlanta is high on Cam Reddish, or I've also heard that they may be high on Jarrett Culver at number four, and they're willing to trade the number eight and number 10 pick to the Lakers. And you said you'd do that if that trade was available. So at number eight, let's say the Lakers do get number eight and number 10. At the number eight spot, and I don't want to go too far into this because we haven't even got (laughs) to who the Lakers would draft at number four. Do you think Brandon Clark would still be available at that spot? I do. I, I think that the NBA is not going to value Brandon Clark as much as some on draft Twitter just because of his age. And you saw the measurements with his wingspan. I think that's going to be overblown. But you look at comparisons. I mean, the NBA does this too, as far as looking at stylistic similarities, similar build, athleticism, all of that. It's kind of hard to find an example of what Brandon Clark is in the past. He doesn't compare to really anybody. He's very different as far as his stylistically and his measurements, especially. Like he's 209 pounds or whatever he measured at the combine. He's not like this Draymond Green 230 pound defender. So I think the NBA is going to be a little bit less high on him. And we always see during the draft, shooting gets pushed up and put at a premium, ball handling gets pushed up, these primary. The score types. It's not really the defense that gets valued accurately in the mm-hmm. draft for the most part. It's usually the older guys who aren't great shooters get pushed down a little bit. And I think that's going to be reflective of Brandon Clark, even though he's a world-class athlete. And luckily for the Lakers, they are looking for the exact type of mold and player that Brandon Clark is. Someone who's a little bit older, someone who you can kind of just plug and play, not in the shooting sense, but you know, at the very least, he'll be very active. He'll be dynamic on the floor. He'll clean up the boards, be a great role man. So in that sense, if they were able to get 8 and 10 and draft Brandon Clark, that'd be amazing. Now, in, in your eyes, what would be like the dream scenario for if you're the GM and you have 8 and 10, you get Brandon Clark at 8, who would be the, and I guess in the Lakers context, what would be the dream scenario at 8 and 10? Clark and who else at number 10? <laughs> yeah, I think honestly with Clark, you can pencil Clark in at, at 10. Like, I don't think you have to take him at 8. I don't think the, oh, okay. the, Washington, I don't think the Washington Wizards are going to take him as like more of a, a low, he's going to be viewed not as high a ceiling because of his age. I don't. I think they're going to take someone like Seiko Demboya or Jackson Hayes, that physical upside guy. Just looking at their past drafts, I, I would be surprised if he went nine. I think Clark's outcome range realistically starts at probably eleven to Minnesota. But in this mm-hmm. event, I, if we're just treating it as the best player on my board, I think Clark would be there at ten, which brings up 
very interesting scenario at eight because you have <laughs> a lot of guys that are penciled in that range. I think there's kind of a top eight in this class, how execs view it. Of course, I mean, Williamson, Morant, Barrett, Culver, Hunter, Garland, White, and Cam Reddish. One of those guys is going to fall. Who is it? And I think there there's not like value at eight necessarily for those guys, unless Culver. Like I, I would give weight to Culver. Like if the Lakers could trade back to eight and 10 and get Culver and Clark, I think that's like obviously a win. That's a huge win. That's probably best sure. case scenario. How likely is it that Culver falls? I don't know. If, if Atlanta trades up and drafts Cam Reddish, you could possibly see that. It, it just kind of depends. So that would be the optimal scenario for me. Pairing Clark with someone like Goga Batats, the center from, mm-hmm. you know, in, international center. Fantastic. I really like him. He, he'd probably be in my second tier, but at the very end, just because of the value of, or sorry, I should say third tier at the very end, just because of the value of big man in the modern game, if you can't play space defense at a high level. But I think he has some intrigue too. I think he's one of the 10 best prospects in this class. So if you traded back to eight and 10 and got, you know, Clark and Batads, I think that's an awesome trade back. And I don't, I don't think anybody at four is like, will I'm really like killing myself for passing on. There's not that guy in this class to me. Sure. I think outside of your optimal scenario of Culver and Clark, the next best thing for me, at least, would be DeAndre Hunter somehow slipping to eight and then the Lakers still being able to draft Clark at 10 because those are two players that, you know, are a little bit more day one ready that the Lakers could use, especially DeAndre Hunter if he's just going to be a catch and shoot guy. And right now, I don't know how real his 40% three point shooting is on a on lower volume, but just in terms of the type of player mold he could be as a 3 and D potential 3 and D prospect for the Lakers, I feel like being able to draft Clark and Hunter and be somewhat confident that they could contribute in the next one or two years if they keep their picks would be amazing. Um, with that said, one more <laughs> last hypothetical, Cole. And I, I want to point out that there are cap stipulations that the Lakers have to be wary of, of course, because jumping from number 11 to number four already added about $3 million to the Lakers cap books. And I think they may be even 200K short right now of getting that 32.7 max player. That can easily be overcome and offset by, you know, trading Mo Wagner or Isaac Bongo away or even just stretching one of those two. But that's the reality right now. So if they trade back to number eight and number 10, I think that adds on and tacks on like a million or two more. Not to say that it's impossible for the Lakers to still get to that max slot, that Kyrie, Kawhi, seven to nine year max slot, but there's still going to be more work involved. So it's very unlikely that any of this happens, but oh my God, can you imagine if one of my hypotheticals happens? I'm going to post it all over Twitter and remind people that I talked about (laughs) it on this podcast. Um, But my last hypothetical, if the Lakers do trade to number eight and number 10, trade down to number eight and number 10 is, let's say that they draft one of those picks they actually draft a player whether it's number eight or number 10 and then they take that other pick and trade it for a player making three to four million dollars so in this scenario it would have to be a guy a young potential guy on his second or third year contract cole i have a list of guys who are within that range that the lakers could trade the number 10 or number eight for i'm gonna run them by you and you tell me whether you'd trade number 10 let's say they're gonna trade number 10 and they'll they'll make their pick at eight and get Brandon Clark. You tell me if there's any guys on this list that you'd be like, yeah, trade the 10 for for this guy who can contribute more readily than the guy you're going to pick at number 10. You ready sure. for this? Let's do it. Luke Kennard, 3.8 million. Ooh, that's a great one. I actually think Kennard's kind of <laughs> underrated. He had a good series. He was probably the only guy outside of Blake who had a good series in the playoffs against the Bucks. Yeah. Just the shooting. 
I like what you said about Hunter, and I like Hunter's fit on LA a lot more just because LeBron will maximize him from day one. So getting Kennard shooting on the Lakers, looking at this draft, yeah, I think from the guys available at 10, likely I would probably do that. Okay, cool. Uh, this one you're going to say yes to, DeMontis Sabonis. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I just think that he, when you're, yeah, you're looking at a lower level starter ideally, and, and yeah, that's just, I would take the certainty, I think. Sure. Uh, this this one's a little more tricky. Dario Saric. You have to pay him next year, though, so I don't know if I'd do that as, a, as the Lakers. Yeah, that's... I don't know if you get enough immediate value out of that contract, and I don't, I, I don't love his defense at the highest levels of play either, and that's kind of... I, I don't really trust the bonus there as much either, but you're getting a little bit more cost-effectiveness, so... Uh, I would probably lean towards no, even though the value is certainly there. Like what Saric has shown in the league, it's deserving of the number 10 pick in this class. Sure. I just, I, I'm not quite sure if I'd do that if I was the Lakers specifically. Yeah, maybe if he had improved as a shooter and become some sort of pseudo Nikola Miritich, right? Then you pull the trigger there, but that hasn't panned out. Um, what about Torian Prince from the Hawks? 3.4 million. I would not. I've watched a lot of Prince. I've seen okay. a, I've seen plenty of Hawks watching Trey Young. I, I think this catch and shoot ability is definitely there, but I think you bring up the contract issues, paying him. I don't believe in his defense. So if he really played real defense, I would be in on that idea. He also wouldn't be probably available if he did that because <laughs> the Hawks wouldn't want right. to trade him if he did. So I, I would say no to that. What about Bam Adebayo from the Miami Heat? Yeah, I think I would do that. Uh, hmm. I'm not as high on Bam as some, but I do think he's pretty underrated as like a straight five. And again, I think he would be maximized with LeBron. LeBron would find him on these alley-oops. He's a better passer than he gets credit for. He can run dribble handoff actions. That's that's a little tougher because I would take Gogo over him in a vacuum if I was picking big. So I don't know. It, it just depends on who, who exactly is on the board. I can see credible arguments for both. I doubt Miami does that, though. I think they value Bam pretty highly. Yeah. Uh, here are two other names that their teams definitely won't do it, but man, if the Lakers could get this <laughs> trade done, John Collins and Karis LeVert, you'd do that in a second, right? For both. Yeah, and I, I do yeah. have questions about Collins' defense, but he's just so freaking good on offense. He's so athletic that, he, again, he's someone that LeBron's going to be able to optimize. So I, I, would, I would do that for sure, and I would definitely do it for, for Karis LeVert, but that would never happen in either case. Yeah. Yep. This may be a, a little bit more realistic, but what about OG Ananubi, 2.2 million? Yeah, that's that comes into the medical with him this year and how you feel about that moving forward. The jump shot isn't very versatile, but as far as just being a combo forward who can really switch and if he can knock down an open jump shot, I think that his athleticism on the ball, he can kind of play that stopper role next to LeBron. I would probably do that. I think there could be reasons not to if you find out more intel that's negative, but based on what I know, I would do that. Great. All right. Well, guess what, everybody? We're finally here. Number four pick for the Lakers. We're going <laughs> to finally talk about prospects. So, Cole, to put it simply, at number four, who do you think fits best with the Lakers roster if they keep the pick? And who fits best around LeBron James? Right now, amongst Lakers Twitter, the consensus three or four players are Jarrett Culver, Darius Garland, DeAndre Hunter. And at this point, would you, I know you would do it, but you'd be totally fine with the Lakers picking Brandon Clark at four. Yeah, from a value standpoint, like you always want to trade back when things aren't right. when guys aren't perceived as high. So ideally, would I take Brandon Clark at four? No, ideally, I would move back for a deal we talked about. But as, as far as value in this class, I, yeah, I, I think he's good enough to go number four in this class. The best fit is an absolutely incredibly good question. It's just very <laughs> dependent on like certain guys will help more year one, but they don't have the same kind of ceiling. But the ceiling difference isn't like incredible. Like Jarrett Culver, I don't think he's as good of a shooter as DeAndre Hunter straight up off the catch. I think Hunter can play an immediate role. 
and he would be optimized on the Lakers because of LeBron and kind of just being this tertiary 3 and D guy. But I like Culver much more as a prospect. I think that his playmaking secondarily is much higher. He can dribble past shoot. If the shot translates, he, he's all about shot variance. He's not the best athlete as far as first step. But if he can make an off-the-cat shot, I think he's going to look more athletic in the NBA because a lot of his offense at Texas Tech was from a standstill and pick and roll. He's that kind of brings to the surface his biggest issue, which is first step quickness and everything. I think if you get him attacking mm-hmm. closeouts, he could really be an awesome secondary passer. And I think the Lakers have would have the infrastructure with like Lonzo's quick ball movement, all of those factors that they would really be able to swing the ball. But the shooting's the question, right? That's something that the right. Lakers are definitely going to look at. And that's where you get into someone like Darius Garland, who is more of a lead guard as far as scoring than Lonzo is in the half court. Lonzo's more of a transition point guard, half court shooting guard. And Garland's more of like an undersized shooting guard, but he can play on the ball and pick and roll. We just don't know about his playmaking for others. I mean, he hasn't really shown that, and we have a limited sample to work with. Is he a real point guard? Does he need to be with LeBron? Because LeBron's going to have the ball. <laughs> you know what I mean? So that kind of necessitates two things. One, shooting, two, defense. So if you're looking at it just from that scope and who would help LeBron the most right away, you could make an argument for DeAndre Hunter. You can make an argument for Cam Reddish. I mean, if you really buy Reddish's shooting, like he's a good team defender. He's not great as far as basically anything else. Um, but he has off movement shooting versatility. If he, you just put him in a role where he's taking a, he's getting up, you know, eight threes a game, and that's his role specifically. It's not the on the ball creation stuff. I think Cameron Reddish, you'd have an easy argument for him at number four as well, even though I don't think he's as good. So it just comes down to mm-hmm. what the Lakers are looking for. Are you looking for the best, you know, long term upside piece, or are you looking for a guy that can just come in and immediately play a role next to LeBron? It's hard to juggle those two things. Yeah, and I think the. I've kind of faded Darius Garland in my mind just because of the injury concerns and the fact that it's taken him so long to rebound from his early season injury from last year. And just given the Lakers context of already dealing with Lonzo Ball and Brandon Ingram, who have both missed like a third of their seasons the last two years, I'm not sure it's in their best interest to then take on another injury prone sort of player, even though it may just be a one-off, but it's a meniscus tear, you know? So for me, I'm sort of fading Darius Garland, even though in my mind, he's like the super sexy YouTube pick, right? Where you watch his highlights (laughs) and you're like, oh my gosh, he's got all the dribbles. He's super crafty. And not only that, his change of pace, change of speed, being able to pull up on a dime for a jump shot is pretty amazing. And I think what separates him from a guy like D'Angelo Russell, who was also pretty crafty with his dribble, is the fact that he can really blow by you, right? His first step is incredible, and especially in transition, he's just like a super quick guard. So not only does he have that craftiness, but he's got that quick twitch ability and blow by ability, right? Where he he gets you on a crossover, you lean just an inch one way, and Darius Garland's gone, right? But how effective that is that on a LeBron James team if he doesn't have that much opportunity to do that? Maybe again, second units, right? But Outside of that, he may just have to be that off-ball type shooter and turn into Landry Shamit or something. Yeah, and those kinds of players, if you play them more off the ball, like those kinds of players at the highest levels of play usually have to play defense. And I think Garland, from a technical standpoint, is actually okay defensively, but I don't think it translates to the NBA. Like I think he's going to be a minus defender at his size, as most guys are. You have to have either some kind of you know physical trait, whether that's just incredible athleticism, strength usually, and length, like an Eric Bledsoe. That guy's a high-level athlete. You know, he has a length. 
He has the quickness. He has the strength to absorb contact. All of those things are important. And if you take the ball out of Garland's hands, you make him a shooter, he's going to have gravity. So I, I don't really have a problem with him playing off the ball on offense. I think he can fill that role to a sure. really good level and be a secondary creator for LeBron. But can you get it back defensively? It's not like you're going to walk into the playoffs next year and Garland's going to be able to guard the Warriors. You know what I mean? So that's another factor is like how much are the Lakers going in on LeBron's timeline? Because if you're doing that... Garland can provide regular season value at times, but I think he reaches a certain point, especially in his role or his projected role in the playoffs where he's a liability defensively and can he get it back on offense? So I've seen some people comment on the fact that at the very least, Darius Garland, as opposed to previous prospects like him in the past, like say a Dennis Smith Jr., that at the very least, he's a scrappy sort of defender. He's never going to have that Lonzo Ball awareness or even have the frame to be a good defender, but at the very least, he goes after it. Is that what you've seen on your end? That there may be a little hope there with regards to maybe he can play good team defensive eventually. Yeah, I mean, his awareness isn't bad off the ball. Like He's not a very intuitive playmaker necessarily from what I've seen, but he's usually in the right spots. Like He's not Dennis Smith where he's lapsing off the ball and giving mm-hmm. up a back cut. Like He's good enough to where he'll be in the right positions. I just don't know how valuable that is because in the playoffs, you're going to switch more. He's going to get targeted as the smallest player on the team. Most every team attacks this way now. I mean, some are more extreme, like not every team's going to attack you as relentlessly as Houston Rockets with James Harden, but a lot of teams are going to attack the weakest link. And I think that he's still that player. Can he hold up on the ball and switches? I don't know, man. I mean, he is, he does try from what I've seen. He takes some pride in his defense, but I, again, I think that a lot of people overrate defense at lower levels and like play, being a good college defender doesn't mean you're going to be a good NBA defender. There's just so many things that work against you, especially at that size. So I'm a little bit more pessimistic on his projection there. It's not, terrible as far as his defensive projection like again I still think if you're in the right spots that still helps I think he's better than Trey Young was on defense in college for example Trey Young was also mm-hmm. one of the worst defenders in the NBA this year so it's it's tough I, I don't think he's a complete lost cause but I'm definitely projecting him as a negative defensive player sure okay Cole. it's gut check time you're the Lakers GM who are you <laughs> picking at number four I'm going to go Jarrett Culver. I think he's the okay. best combination of value at that pit, at that spot. Again, I think Brandon Clark might actually slide in higher than him on the right team for me in my rankings, but I, I feel the best about Culver as far as his secondary playmaking and his defensive ability. Like I think his defense is very underrated. Um, he measured in at like 195. He plays much bigger than that. I like his feet on the ball. And if he shoots, if, if you get him easier looks off the catch like he had his freshman year instead of his sophomore year when he was basically the initiator, I, I think I like his ability to play off these guys. I mean, I don't know. It, it's tough because it's so much shot variance, but if the shot goes, if you can hit a respectable clip on catch and shoot threes, I do think that he probably is the best fit both short and long term for the Lakers do you think that Jason sorry I was already bearing the lead there but do you (laughs) think that Jared Culver could have a sort of Jason Tatum like progression where all of a sudden his three-point shot emerges in the NBA because I know that was an issue with Jason Tatum in college right where he wasn't shooting a lot of threes wasn't hitting a lot of them at a high rate could that be the case for Culver even though I think his shot mechanics they're a little wonky because he the motion is like he holds the ball in his hands for a long time and then it's a super yep. high arcing shot. It's almost Andre Iguodala-esque a little bit. And I actually think he shoots a lot better off the dribble, especially in the mid-range. Like it looks like a more fluid shot, but when it's an off-the-catch three-point shot, it just takes a long time to for him to hoist it up there. But, but yeah, could you see him maybe making that sort of progression? 
I would bet against it just because Tatum was such a strong free throw shooter and his prior as like a mid-range shooter. He was actually like right, legitimately right. good. His issue was more can he push it to NBA three range because he just didn't shoot a lot of them. He didn't shoot a ton in college and he always showed that proclivity to operate in the mid-range more. But he was like an 84% free throw shooter in college his, his freshman year. Like Culver's been like, you know, 65 if memory serves and like almost to 70. I think he might have gotten to 70 this year. I can't remember. But like it's... It's not as rosy as Jason Tatum, like who came in with, I think, a stronger shooting prior. I would be, I would be kind of surprised if Culver developed into that kind of shooter. Yeah, I mean, because Tatum was over forty percent from three his rookie year. Like he's been, he's really taken a leap. And I've, I watched Tatum shoot in the high school level, and he was taking one dribble pull ups in the mid range instead of all his teammates at. Um, the Nike Hoops on my practices who would take threes. So I think that he's put in a ton of work. Tatum's a worker. I think Culver's also a worker. You you hear people talk about him. He watches a ton of tape. He's added something to his game every year. So I I tend to bet on guys like that. I think it's reasonable that Culver becomes a proficient shooter. I don't think I would bet on him to the same level as a Jason Tatum type. Sure. I think what Culver maybe has that or at a higher level than Jason Tatum at the moment is probably his handles and his ability to dribble the ball in pick and roll situations and just find his spots in the mid-range at, at times he looks super fluid I mean he's six six, but at times he, he dribbles out there like he's CJ McCollum navigating these screens and that's what I've been most impressed by uh, with regards to Jared Culver and his ability to get to his spots now with regards to DeAndre Hunter what are your thoughts on Hunter because for me he seems like the safest pick for the Lakers. If I'm just putting on the Lakers goggles and asking myself, who has the safest floor here? And I look at DeAndre Hunter, he has the physique of like Aaron Gordon and his player profile is like a a safe Jay Crowder. You know, eventually he could just be a 3 and D guy, but oh my God, like he is so sturdily built and (laughs) every dribble he takes has so much purpose. It's like so simple, like, I put this out on Twitter. I put out a video of DeAndre Hunter and just named it The Art of Simplicity because he'll take a two-dribble pull-up and it looks so boring, but it's so effective for him. And the way that he's just able to use his strength, but not in a messy, clunky, Julius Randle-type way (laughs) to finish around the basket and just get to his spots, it's really impressive to me. It may He may cap out at what we see right now, but I guess with regards to... What do you think of DeAndre Hunter and also, I guess in connection to Jarrett Culver, why are you more willing to take on a Culver than you are a Hunter? Yeah, I think the passing is the biggest difference and like the general feel and decision making. Like that's something that going back to Tatum with Culver really quick, I think the biggest differentiator between those two is passing. Like Culver just feels the game at a higher level. He can operate and pick and roll, make the skip pass read. Handles are probably even favor Tatum as far as like shake creating his own shot. Like Tatum has legit like lateral burst and like the crossover moves. Culver can do that stuff, but he's not maybe quite as deceptive. But I think compared to Hunter, it's tough because like, I do think Hunter fills a more projectable role than Jarrett Culver right away. Again, if you use him as a very specific three and D guy where he's just taking a lot of catch and shoot threes off just spacing from the corner. He's not a movement shooter really at a high level. He's flashed a little bit of like the ability to shoot off pin down curls, but he's not like this guy who's going to fly off of screens and shoot really quickly. He's not like Cameron Johnson out of North Carolina, not anywhere close to that. 
So how functional is his shot? How versatile is it? That's going to be a question. But if you're just telling him to, to knock down threes and be like, hey, go guard Paul George for 38 minutes in this game. <laughs> like, I think that is, I'm not saying he's going to lock him down or anything, but he's technically incredible on defense. Like his, his footwork, his positioning, the way he uses his length. He's not even like a crazy leaper. He rarely like applies himself that way. Like you rarely see him jump to contest shots. He almost never gets blocked shots. All of his steal and block rate stuff has been well publicized. I think there is legitimate issues with his fuel level as far as playmaking off the ball, etc. But he's just so damn good as an on-ball technical defender that in a specific role, if you're asking him to do that, if you're asking him to guard the other team's best wing player every night in the regular season, if you're asking him to knock down shots, I think that he's probably the most capable of doing those two things. It's just how valuable are those compared to getting a guy who has better feel level and has better you know, secondary playmaking instincts like a Jared Culver. Sure. Let's talk about some dark horse candidates. This isn't exactly a dark horse since he was always slated within the top 10, but would you be surprised if the Lakers took Jackson Hayes at number four? Because at that point, you can just slot him into the young core if you're willing to just, you know, trial things out for the next year and be like, oh, well, there's really no positional redundancy here with Kuzma, Alonzo, Brandon Ingram, and here's Jackson Hayes. Yeah, I would still be surprised just because he's more of a multi-year guy. Like he might even be a second contract player with how sure. he's a little bit even more he's more raw than even like a Jared Allen, for example. And I just don't if you can't shoot the ball, unless you're like a crazy athlete and you get pigeonholed into like the the play finisher role like a DeAndre Ayton and you or a Marvin Bagley just have this insane pedigree. I think a lot of teams are going to prioritize shooting for their bigs. And like with Hayes, he does have actually some workable touch. I think he was over 80% from the line in conference play, but his mechanics are so raw. Like it's going to be a multi-year thing and he has to add considerable strength. He doesn't play nearly as big as his size. He he has toughness issues as far as boxing out. He, he's kind of built like I think he's going to add considerable girth and maybe be like almost to the level of Steven Adams as far as just how big he is, but he's not that physical. He doesn't have that in his game. He doesn't do the little big man things that you like, especially the physicality stuff and his ability to really finish plays, tracking balls off the rim. He's not a great rebounder. He's actually a really poor rebounder historically. So there are some issues, and I think there's too many question marks to invest in a rim-running center at number four. I just don't think, unless you're just a crazy, crazy defensive prospect, like a, like a Rudy Gobert, for example, if you have those measurements or like how people viewed Mo Bamba, that's a different, but I, I just don't think that Hayes is going to proceed with that kind of upside. He's more in like the Willie Cauley Stein vein of things, right? Yes, that's a, that's a good example. I think even Clint Capella had more selling points in ways than Hayes did as far as it being an explosive leaper. Like Hayes isn't the most explosive guy. Like he's just has a huge catch radius because he's a former wide receiver. He has insanely big hands. He can catch lobs. He, he had an incredible finishing season this year, but I don't see quite enough diversity in that. And, and again, I just think the Lakers, if they make this pick at four, I don't think that Hayes has enough upside to invest there when the floor and the time it'll take him to play actual meaningful minutes is longer. Sure. What about Kobe White? And especially as we can, you know, directly contrast him with Darius Garland, Kobe White out of North Carolina, a little bit taller, 6'5", can play off ball, has a good shooting profile. Would you be surprised if the Lakers went Kobe White instead of, let's say, a Darius Garland, if they're looking for that type of player mold? I wouldn't be shocked, but I would be slightly surprised just because Garland has like a much stronger prior. Like he came into the season as a top 10 guy by ESPN. I think there's a little bit more comfort with his film as far as pre-college, even though White has the much more expansive college film, but they are kind of similar players when you look at them. Like it's they're a similar, I guess, archetype of player. I think I'm writing a piece about this again right now, but Kobe White 
his shot's a little bit more versatile as far as being a three-level scorer, especially in the mid-range, because Garland is more of like a forward momentum shooter. He's quick as far as getting his release off, and he has better range off the dribble than White does. But White in the mid-range area can shoot with more backward momentum. You see him shoot fadeaways, fallaways. He can get a shot up over the top of guys a little bit easier. Both of them have issues as far as getting to the rim and finishing explosively. They're both not dynamic vertical athletes, and they both don't have this crazy length that they can really extend around guys like we see from Michelle Alexander, for example. So you're, you're drafting them kind of to be combo guard type of players where they shoot the question is defense and I don't really believe in Kobe White's defense at a high level Mm -hmm. like he does navigate screens okay he does play with effort I think his effort is probably the best thing but it's not like Garland doesn't try either and I just don't think Kobe White's size is really worth that much like he's listed over six four and a half you know six five he has the shorter wingspan and his strength level isn't incredible obviously he can get run through in space and he doesn't have like that crazy Eric Bledsoe kind of athleticism so I'm viewing his defense it's it's higher than Garland just because I think he does play a little bit bigger than Garland does but they're both negative so really it's just coming down to what they can do offensively that's what you have to do with all your guard analysis you're mostly looking for offense because few guys can get it back on the other end yeah that makes sense what about Kevin Porter Jr. And he may be more of a guy who, if the Lakers trade down to 8 and 10, maybe you draft him along with Brandon Clark. Do you think that he could raise his draft profile stock with the individual workout interviews and individual workouts in general? I know he tested pretty well in the draft combine this year, a little volatile based off of his history, but could you see Kevin Porter Jr. being, being an option? Because to me, he's kind of similar to Cam Reddish. Yeah, I think just think reddish again has more of a proven shooting sample like with with kevin porter like he has more dynamic ability off the dribble we're talking about probably the best in the class as far as creating separation he's incredibly athletic like short area burst actually kind of tested a little bit disappointingly at the combine i thought overall okay he's still functionally he's still a good athlete like we watch his tape he's like yeah he's he's fine especially with how deceptive his dribble is he doesn't have the tightest handle like Darius Garland, for example, has an awesome handle. It's better than Kobe White's. That's another comparative point. Is White has those shorter arms and a longer to- torso, so the ball's higher a lot of the times on his dribble. Kevin Porter's kind of loose at times, but man, he, he can create separation. He has a lower release point on his shot. Can he make shots consistently off the dribble? And it's he's one of the most difficult players to project because, for one, USC was terrible this year. They were yeah. really bad to watch. It's a bad situation. But all he did was shoot step-back jumpers all season. Like He, he would have lanes to the rim and he wouldn't apply his athleticism that way he would just mm-hmm. cop out and take a, a, a like a step back jumper and it's like okay what do you really do with that information we didn't see him in enough high leverage situations as far as pick and roll playmaking but i do think that he's one of the guys that could rise with good interviews if teams feel good about his character then his shot making because the nba is always looking for a shot creation that's the number one thing on basically everybody's board is we want guys who can get their own shot ideally it's efficiently but honestly it's just a lot of the skill level like if you watch if you just put together the flash plays of kevin porter jr be like why is this guy not a top five pick in this class and a lot of it's consistency and a lot of it's how much does this really hold up does his defense going to play out like I I think he has avenues to be a plus defensive player he's got a great frame Uh, he's quick he has some playmaking chops too so I think there are outs that way it just comes down to his mentality his approach how good is he as an actual shooter Uh, I I don't know if he goes as high as 10 or 8 I think there's going to be considered some risk there but it wouldn't shock me yeah, you pretty much just called him Nick Young. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, <laughs> but the last prospect I want to ask you about is Nikhil Alexander-Walker. I think he would also be a good combo at that 8 and 10 spot if the Lakers somehow got Brandon Clark and Alexander-Walker. What are your thoughts on on his play? I think he's an incredible college player. I really do. I think that he's so skilled. He's he's actually really smart with the ball. Like He makes high leverage passes. He, he, he's ambidextrous. So you see a lot of these left-handed, right-handed skips. He can make all of those reads. 
I question him from a translation standpoint just because I don't believe in the frame. Uh, he does play at times to his size, but I think against bigger wing athletes, I think he's going to get taken advantage of a little bit. But if you let him guard point guards, I don't necessarily think he's ultra quick, but I think he's good enough technique-wise to, to maybe do that if you put him next to Alonzo Ball, who's guarding wings. The fit is workable. I just don't believe in the athleticism. I don't believe in his ability okay. to separate his burst. He's skilled as hell. He's got a good handle. He can... He, I mean, Virginia Tech would run offense through him like in the post, and he would just carve teams up with his passing because Virginia Tech has this five-out system that makes him look really good, too. That's another element of this. But I, I just don't believe in the athleticism. I don't believe in the dynamic ability to get to the rim. I think you're putting a lot of stock in his shooting ability, and he can make a spot three with time and space, but his mechanics... They're fine, but it's a little bit more of like a, a longer release. It's not like he is ultra quick, like Darius Garland off the catch, where it's just he catches it one motion up. Like Nikhil takes a little bit more time. His release angle, a little bit weird as far as to the side of his head. I don't, I don't care about that stuff as much now. I, I just think from a release speed standpoint, you have to factor that in. But it's mainly just I don't buy him as an athlete. Sure, that's fair. All right, with that said, I'm going to cut this off here and say that this is part one. Cole, thanks for joining us for part one. You're going to join us for part two. I don't know when I'm going to release part two, but uh, yeah, two doses of Cole. So everybody look out for that. But (laughs) I'll cut it off right here. But for those who want an exclusive early listen of our part two conversation with Cole, please consider donating and becoming a patron. Uh, You can do so at patreon.com slash the Lakers Legacy Podcast. All throughout summer, you'll be able to get early looks and listens of some of our episodes with some of our special guests and whatnot. And also, it just helps us out a lot. Also, if I didn't mention before, Tommy's getting married in July. So if you just want to shoot him over a dollar and send through some well wishes, you can do that as well. And then lastly, we're also hoping to hold a pre-draft, pre-free agency mailbag mailbag episode. So if you want to get your questions in, you can, you can email us at thelakerslegacypod at gmail.com. Or you can go to Twitter at Lakers Legacy Pod and direct message us. Or you can reply to one of our tweets and just send us your question that way. And lastly, you can also put your question in the form of an iTunes rating and review and we'll make sure to look there as well. Um, and yeah, with that said, that'll be it for this episode. Stay tuned for part two. Patreon subscribers to the Lakers Legacy Podcast will get that earlier than everyone else. But for now, thank you guys for listening and we'll catch you guys next time. <laughs> What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today.